Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan Island. Uh, on um, October 22nd, which means that uh, right now it is cannabis harvest season in Northern California. And uh, on this podcast, we are going to be joined through the miracle of Zoom by Carla Avila, who is uh, speaking to us from her homestead in the mountains of Trinity County in the far north of California, the heart of the Emerald Triangle, the nation's foremost cannabis-growing region, where she is a licensed cannabis cultivator and a community activist, speaking on behalf of small legacy producers in an increasingly big-money-dominated legal cannabis industry in the state of California. And with that, our interview, the Counter Vortex interview with Carla Avila. So, uh, Carla Avila, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex podcast from uh, Trinity County, way up in uh, the woods of Northern California. Eh? That's right. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. So, uh, how's the weather up there now? Well, it is raining. It is pouring rain, Bill. We oh, yeah? received inches huh? of rain overnight. I am so happy to say, after months of fire, we are we right. are yes, indeed. a lot of water cool. right now. And so, yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little bit early for the, uh, for the rainy season, isn't it? It is. It was a really early fall. I think on in the last... At seven or eight years, I have not seen the crop finish this early, and we we had a really early turn into fall this year. Uh, I think the drought, the two year drought, had a lot to do with that, but it was it was needed, and nature did its thing. And it's an it's it's a La Nina year, so you know all of the rhythms are. I'm sorry, coming into play here. It's a what year? Did you say? La Nina, which oh, is La Nina. One of the yes, yes, yes. Weather pattern. Yes. yes. So yeah. So you know, we were hoping that would come through, and and she has, and so we're seeing a very early uh, finish to the season, but also some really much needed rain in California and in the West, and so. Right, so so um, La Nina brings rain, whereas El Nino deprives California of rain. If I got that right, I and I. I I think so. I don't know how far south it changes because I, right. I think it has to do with, with how far north or south you are. Yes, and I, I, I don't know, know where that line is, but right. I think, uh, so I think up here where we're at in Northern California, um, La Nina brings our rain yes, pattern. Yes, yes. Well, good. Cause God knows you've been needing it. God knows we have. <laughs> so was sure. your neck of the woods, uh, b uh, badly impacted by the fires? Well, my immediate community was spared. Uh, we had some rain about a month ago that, that helped kind of put things under control after, after over a month, after about six weeks of just really uh, the kind of fire that literally spread in all directions across our county. And so we, 
we had almost no communities that weren't impacted. Everybody was impacted, but we were we were spared of it burning through, and it kind of kept at the edge of our community. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of people that are under all kinds of conditions now of um, you know dealing with the aftermath of either having burned all or partly burned through, and we definitely had hundreds of farms impacted by the fires and, and thankfully a lot of homes were spared. Uh, when it comes to gardens, you know, that's some were and some weren't. And so or now when you say of, farms, you're talking about cannabis farms? Mostly cannabis farms. Yes, we do have, uh, we do have other, ag a lot, you know, we do have a good amount of agriculture in Trinity County. A lot of it is, is homestead farming or very small scale agriculture, small scale ranching. Uh, but, and then of course our timber, which a lot of right. that burned. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the other kinds of trees that we grow in Trinity and then cannabis, uh, definitely, most definitely. All right. Now, when you talk about your community, what, what community is that? So my, my community is High and Palm, which is a small river valley on the South Fork Trinity River. And we're about eight miles from the Humboldt County line in very ah. far Western Trinity and, and very remote. We're hours from any highways, but in, a, in just a very majestical, beautiful valley that is surrounded by really steep mountains on all sides. And we have a really amazing growing season for, for full term cannabis. Wow, I'd love to see it one day. You, you right. must if you have not. <laughs> <clears throat> So, uh, and your business out there, just to talk about that for starters, is um, Flower Days Farm. That's Flower, D-A-Z-E, ha, 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 Flower Days Farm. Uh, you want to tell That's us about right. what, uh, what, what, what you're growing and what you're, uh, what, what, what you're doing with your crop? Sure. Well, we're really excited to grow from seed. We have uh, really amazing genetics in our valley that have been worked here for decades at this point, 30, 40 years. And so we have the high and palm purple cushions that uh, have been, you know, kind of were brought to our valley and, and kind of have been isolated to uh, our immediate little bioregion for Brought to the valley when? In, in the 80s? I think it would have, no, it would have been sooner, earlier than that. I think it was uh, early 70s. Mm -hmm. Wow, that early, wow. And then throughout the 70s, I think there were some some other genetic contributions, you know, like people were still able to go across the world and access land race regions. I mean, that's still being done today, but there was there was quite a bit of that uh, during the decade of the 70s. Well, that, and I back think then you could actually go to Afghanistan and people actually did go right. to Afghanistan and bring you could back seeds. Yeah, you could do that. So, yeah. I mean... It, it was, you know, that came here to Northern California to these mountainous regions that are really, really similar in so many ways to that other side of the world. And so uh, it just really thrived here and it became part of the culture. It's always been an agrarian rural community with a really remote and isolated. And so we've always relied on the land and it was something that became integrated into the homestead and just kind of general culture of of the Northern California kind of Emerald Triangle and different mountainous regions. And so here we are 40 years, 35 years later at the, you know, seeing what those, what those uh, 
lineages and genetics have done as they've assimilated to Northern California and to where we are today, uh, it's just really amazing to be working with this plant and to see how that evolution of that relationship between the plant and, and the people has evolved here in our, in our place. And, and, and just, you know, that whole idea of like, when you, when you grow a product, a really craft product, and it's from a place that's, you, that product then displays those unique characteristics of that place, and you can taste it in the product, and it's kind of almost brings you there. And so that's a very special part of a lot of craft products across the world, really artisanal products. And that's something that, you know, has really been part of how cannabis evolved here where we are. And so that's something that we're trying to preserve today. Right, the whole notion of appellations that have been used in the wine industry in Europe and now around the world um, is starting to take hold with cannabis now as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, we, we're on our way to uh, the first Appalachian of origin projects being piloted in California for cannabis. There's already a bill and legislation that lays out how to apply for an Appalachian of origin and they're really high standards and we worked with the wine industry to really build a really reputable model for what can, cannabis Appalachians of origin can look like and so California is really spearheading the way, pioneering that in a lot of ways. And it's really exciting because it's part of what is really important about, about our region and the cannabis that, that does come from here. All right, I guess this ties in with your, uh, your work with the Origins Council, which That's is a, um, a statewide, uh, statewide body, statewide coalition of um, legacy mm -hmm. cannabis producers. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It is it is a the statewide coalition of all of California's uh, legacy cannabis producing regions and we're growing every year as far as having really organized uh, trade associations in the legacy cannabis producing regions and helping to support legacy cannabis producers, the people that this industry's, you know, the people whose backs this industry was kind of built on. And, and try and really make sure that those genetics and those cultural resources and those craft farms and regions are being supported through the regulatory system as we, as we go through this process of you know, legaliz legalization as we're calling it, but you know, there's a ways to go there, so. <laughs> yes, well, that's what, really what we wanna talk about is the, the contradictions that have unfolded along with, uh, along with legalization in California. Now, when, when, you, when we use the word legacy, we should make clear we're talking about uh, people who were growing before legalization. Yes, people who were growing. I mean, in California, we have had Proposition 215, which brought us the ability to grow medical cannabis uh, for way back 1996. in 1996. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the fallacy of that bill was that it didn't lay out a stringent enough regulatory framework for a federally still schedule one Substance. situation. Yeah. <laughs> and so there were a lot of consequences to that and uh, it, it wasn't fully legal, but, but there became this a pathway for medical providers to, to, to cultivate cannabis for more people than just their, themselves. And at that point in time, uh, 
legacy producers from that era were used to being able to work directly with patients and or dispensaries through the medical cannabis law and people had to have prescriptions from a doctor and there were some some rules to that regulation but there wasn't a lot of build out on the end of like land use and uh, just the whole kind of way we look at regulation today especially in commercial agriculture so uh, it had to be brought into the system and and for tax purposes I think as well you know there's all these there's all these reasons why it had to be regulated but what we were seeing in our region was that if we didn't regulate, no regulation is, in, in some ways humanity takes care of itself. And I live in the wild west in a lot of ways. So, you know, I've seen how it can totally work without, but I see also what the severe consequences can be of just a total free for all situation. And so it became, it became a situation of environmentally needing to address how we can protect our watersheds and our communities while still producing cannabis. And so that brought on along with, you know, people wanting to legalize cannabis all the way. And, and so Proposition 64 was passed. And since then, farmers who were already producing have had to kind of come into this new regulatory system that's more for like commercial production, large scale cannabis production. Right, so that was 2016, Prop 64 passed. And then uh, it was uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, instituted the following year with the uh, Medicinal and Adult Use Cannabis Regulatory Safety Act or MALCURSA, is that how you say it out there? <clears throat> Which yes. uh, actually put, put a regulatory framework <laughs> in, in, in place. I'm sorry, how do you say it? We call it MALCURSA. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sounds uh, bad, <laughs> just from the way we call it. It's like, that sounds bad. <laughs> and that's it had, go ahead. It had good and bad, it had good intentions and, and a lot of, you know, thing, it, it's, there's still a lot of things about it that are still a pro prohibitive kind of almost prohibitionist framework. So there's there's good and bad to it you know there was the need for certain things that were part of the intent and then there's the reality of what is actually laid out and how that affects legacy cannabis producing regions and farmers and and the preservation of the culture and the genetics and and, and all the things that have been built here over the last you know several decades so there's a lot kind of at stake right now with how this regulatory system plays out but uh, you might have some other questions about it specifically with, you know, how California's uh, legalization process has played out. Well, it's, it's, it's been uh, something of an ironic situation because, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the price has uh, really plummeted. And uh, meanwhile, you've still got um, enforcement actions which are going on, you know, because unlicensed growers are sort of... Um, being forced into the black market and uh, you've still got these very heavy militarized enforcement actions which are taking place in Northern California, okay. Southern Oregon. Uh, so it's been a, uh, in some ways, uh, the, the dystopias that, that um, legalization was intended to address have somehow survived legalization. Yeah, exactly. The, that prohibitionist uh, kind of really 
heavy enforcement, heavy handed uh, system over cannabis farmers and producers and just the whole supply chain. And it, it's really carried out in the way regulation has been implemented. It's, it hasn't been terrible as far as implementation, but it, it's still designed within the system to be very heavy handed. And so depending on who you are, you may have had you could be fully licensed or you could be not licensed at all. And you may or may not have experienced very heavy handed enforcement, like where you're, you know, you're, you're getting busted or you're like, is this a bust? I, here's my license. I'm really confused right now. <laughs> all kinds of situations. So uh, it's still very much working itself out and it's, there has been a really strong response, positive response from, from our administration and our legislators and our local policymakers to address these issues. So it's not going un, unnoticed that, that these issues and problems are still at play, but it's definitely built in. And there's, there's a lot of hurdles involved with that. And a lot of those are related to the federal changes that need to be made. And, and a lot of state, you know, every state is still waiting for, for a shift there in order yes, to of course. really make a lot of this go away or turn into a whole new set of problems maybe, but, yeah, yeah. but you know, take another step forward. Well, under the, uh, you know, existing, uh, you know, legal and regulatory regime in California, what are, what are the obstacles that, uh, you know, small growers and, um, and legacy producers are facing? Some of the biggest obstacles right now uh, are that we're we're facing really extreme levels of compliance requirements just to get through your permitting process. The costs for a tiny small business to go through the compliance process is is so high that it's it's not always it's really not necessarily feasible for the small farmer and especially in the amount of time that's given in regulation for for someone to come into compliance with all these very specific disc, uh, discretionary review processes related to environmental uh, all kinds of conditions are evaluated and so everything about your site is is kind of under this level of scrutiny that's far beyond what agriculture is scrutinized as because it, we're not considered, we're not defined the same way as regular agriculture. We're, we're not an agricultural crop, we're an agricultural product by definition. And that puts us in a more of a commercial industrial kind of category as far as environmental impact reporting and regulatory hurdles to just come into compliance to be able to to even plant a crop, just to have a permit. So just the, the basic permitting process is a huge hurdle. And then if you get through that, which very, you know, the percentage of legacy farmers who went through that is pretty small to begin with. But then when you go and look at what those people are facing, the, the, there is no small farmer market access to our markets. We're still really, well, most of California is still really not able to access its markets in reality. And it's uh, so it's kind of built, 
built on a supply chain dependent system for large production and it doesn't allow any access for things like farmers markets or farm farmer direct anything and um I mean, we also don't have enough retail shelves because counties could choose to ban. They didn't have to implement the the legalized cannabis proposition. When Prop 64 was passed, it was up to each local jurisdiction, city or county to, to allow it. So there's still a large percentage of California where there isn't legal access in their local jurisdiction. And so when you're a production county like Trinity County or the Emerald Triangle, uh, you are cut off to a lot of the uh, actual patients and consumers who would be your direct, who would be your consumers. And so it's really complicated to get the product off the farm at all. And then when you compound that with uh, the fact that there are really large scale producers now that uh, are supplying or oversupplying the market and the fact that we don't have easy access or distribution channels for small farmers to reach consumers across the state. Uh, we're really just kind of have our hands tied behind our backs and, and it's, and it's pretty dire. It's not working. And, and we're really having to address it as a pretty much a in crisis situation with emergency legislation measures and all kinds of stuff to just like keep literally keep small farmers small cannabis farmers um, alive through this process emergency legislation well this is what's being proposed well there's uh there's a few things that i think uh have happened like we have a provisional licensing program that was uh passed in our last trailer bills uh or extended excuse me uh, it, it's a program that exists to bring existing cannabis sites into compliance, and it was designed to bring in the the legacy cannabis regions and their producers. Um, and so that was extended by legislation to give benchmarks and more time for local jurisdictions and and applicants to carry out the permitting process because it was environmental compliance was taking so long to proceed through and costing so much on all sides, both the local governments and the applicants. It was, it was just like impossible to meet the time measures. So there's a program for implementing this process over time. And that's one thing that has been done by the state um, to- All right, so there's really... been more of a sort of a streamlined process designed to help legacy producers? No, we're working on that. It's really just, it. all it is is an opportunity to try. And it's actually that the, the pathway is not streamlined is the problem and it's taking too long. And that's what we're addressing now with, um, they just released $100 million in grant funding to all of the local jurisdictions that needed that for this process. So they kind of threw some money at it, but that's huge because that was part of the problem is they mandated this very heavy regulatory system and then the resources weren't there to implement it immediately. Huh. So, all right, you know, so what, what concretely about, is this money going to be going towards? It's literally going towards helping counties and cities get through the process of permitting their applicants who are in in this pathway to get a legal licensed cannabis permit. 
And these are mostly people who already have been permitted and have been in this process, but it, it's kind of an, it's a years long process. We are six years in, in Trinity County and Mendocino County is in a similar, similar position. There's a lot of counties, like uh, if you look at the Big Sur, the farmers in the Big Sur region who have been growing Big Sur holy weed for 40 years and they grow an incredible heirloom craft product, they still don't have a pathway for small farmers, small producers in Big Sur to come into licensing. So there, okay, why, there's... Why not? When, when you say there isn't the pathway, what, what, what concretely is uh, blocking the pathway? Well, because Prop 64 allowed jurisdictions locally to essentially ban, like not, not legalize it, it was uh, like yes, we're yes, legalizing, yes. but it's up to each place if they really want to do it. And right, so right. many places have not done it. But the biggest problem is there's that. So there's a lot of places where it's politically not not achievable yet. And then there's places where it's not that there's not a support for it in the community or in or politically locally, but there's not the local resources to go through the costs and the process. They don't have the staff in in the county governments or in the city governments. They don't have the resources, the funding to suddenly go through hundreds and hundreds of these sort of like uh, really intensely. Yes, yes scoping review projects that envir and, and require environmental review by specialists that it's this incredible process. I mean, we look at things like what kinds of trees are on your property? Do you have spotted owls or sensitive species? Then there's this whole four year survey process before you could like even put another water tank in. So there's, I mean, it, it, it can become this really complicated situation to just try and make your way. As okay. Well, supposing, park. for instance, supposing that you do have spotted owls on your property, uh, how are they going to be impacted by growing cannabis apart from, you know, the obvious question of, um, of pesticides? Most of the reasons for why are because it wasn't previously regulated in any way. And people right. were doing, totally illicit activities, whether on private or public lands. And so these are totally different issues. These are not licensed farmers. Licensed farmers are complying with an incredible level of environmental regulation. We don't even draw water. We can't, we don't cut down trees without all the proper permits and right time of year and looking, surveying for spotted owl nests, for example, is right, one right, of those right, things. Right. And so you're already accounting for all of that. So Unfortunately, it's just prohibition era mentality and bias kind of like carrying out through the emergence of legalization and the first kind of iteration of that. And so it's probably something that has happened historically as prohibition has ended with other controlled substances. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it, you know, it's difficult to go through and what's at stake for, for cannabis is like some of the most incredible craft kind of heritage strains and genetics and medicine producers are, are at stake. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the, uh, you know, the, the old gorilla growers have, and in some cases continue to, you know, abuse pesticides and to clear land and engage in, uh, you know, um, yeah. unsound grading of the land and uh, divert right. of water and all that. I mean, um, legalization exactly. was intended to bring that all to an end and to, Yes. To bring to bring some needed oversight. 
and that's that's where that whole enforcement thing comes into play and how are how is enforcement enacted and is it on the most egregious situations or is it just are the funds where are the you know because that's always what it ends up coming down to and so there's these people who are complying and there's this whole trajectory that they're on and a lot of the resources that they are supplying to is going into enforcement and then what happens to that and so that's a multi-agency situation it's like it comes down to your local sheriff your local political kind of climate all the way up to the federal level and and so it's it's a very compounded issue on the enforcement side. And at the end of the day, that's still what we're looking at here. We're looking at, at where, how do we protect our environment? How do we deal with these egregious situations? And that was why most, most farmers signed up for, for permits and went through the process of getting licensed. And it was largely because they wanted to see their watersheds and, and communities and resources you know, be protected. And so we're, you know, we're, we're in the process of in California of figuring out how to really do that. And there's a lot of things that have happened that are really positive. Uh, and we have seen water being restored to our, to our rivers and streams. And so this is a good model and it's not all bad. Um, there's a lot of really good things in this model and environmentally speaking, but, but how do we do that regulatorily without uh, crushing the whole per the whole purpose, the whole intent behind why we're doing it in the first place is, you know, important. <laughs> right, which is uh, <clears throat> bringing some small growers in from the cold, so to speak, and bringing them under, uh, you know, the correct balance of regulation, which is not uh, not burdensome, but is actually protecting the environment and so on. So do you want to tell us about your work with the uh, your local organization, the Trinity County Agriculture Alliance? Absolutely. I would love to. Yes, Trinity County Agriculture Alliance is an organization which is basically the first official trade association of, of cannabis in Trinity County, which is one of the three counties in the Emerald Triangle, along with Mendocino and Humboldt counties. And we are a very rural county. We are extremely remote and we're kind of like the hidden gem, so to speak, of the Emerald Triangle. But we also are this incredible mountainous region where our climate and our geography and our topography and everything about this place is just so optimal and conducive to the production of, of artisanal full season cannabis. And um, we have a lot of uh, really biodiversity in our genetics. We had a lot of land races brought here. We have unique strains in different regions. We have a lot of farmers who have kept seeds for a very long time. And um, so we have these really special kind of uh, just you know, cannabis genetics and 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 climate for producing cannabis, and so a lot of a lot of the Emerald, Emerald Triangle's cannabis comes from Trinity County, and so historically we have been um, a producer of a large percentage of of the country's <laughs> cannabis, and 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 well, Humboldt we are. Sir Humboldt is certainly more well known to people outside exactly. the region. Yeah. 
Humboldt and Mendocino are both very much more well-known. Trinity is indeed like the hidden gem, so to speak. We're, we're, we're relatively unknown and we joke that we're Humboldt's best kept secret <laughs> because we, we produce this killer, killer product. And um, connoisseurs definitely know about Trinity. We get a lot of international visitors. And so uh, we do have a reputation amongst, you know, real cannabis connoisseurs, but otherwise we are relatively unknown even within the state of California. However, um, we, you know, we have been purposely also kind of a hidden, kind of hidden and re remote. Our topography is very remote. We're, you really have to want to come here to visit. You have to yeah. take the time, very come all the way. It's very rugged country. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not for everybody. So, or, or, you know, the, like I said, certain, certain people who are real, um, real cannabis connoisseurs or really committed to like, you know, walking that cannabis trail end up definitely finding their way here. But, uh, but it's, it's at the end of the road to you know, my, a friend of mine who used to follow the Grateful Dead and has been all over and, you know, done that has even said like, it was like the road to the end of the universe. So, uh, but when you come here, it's, it's very much a destination. It's a beautiful wilderness. 85% of Trinity County is, is national forest land. And so, uh, you know, really we're, we're kind of like, in some ways, uh, we're, we're just so remote that you, you have to find your way here. But for cannabis, it's like, uh, it's like walking into the Milano Valley. It's just like, you know, you're just like, where did, where did I just get to? And, and then you're kind of transported into this other place in time where it feels like it's a hundred years ago or, or something. And, and that's Trinity County. So we're, we're a special place and, and very much a cannabis uh, focused uh, Okay. And how, have, how are the, to, to what degree have the county authorities embraced the legal cannabis economy now? Have they really turned around on that? Because I remember when I was out there, uh, you know, back in the 90s, uh, the county authorities were uh, not really on board with cannabis. No. And, and there's definitely still a small percentage of the population that isn't, and it's mostly focused in certain areas of the county, we do have a really large geographic region that we cover. And so uh, the parts that are kind of tied up closer geographically to the Emerald Triangle are very much part of the cannabis producing region and it's part of the culture. It's It's been integrated into the culture for decades. There are uh, problems, inherent legacy environmental issues with unregulated cannabis uh, in, in Trinity County and in the national forests. And that's part of why citizens who are also producing cannabis and have had it in their backyard gardens for decades wanted to do something about that. But, um, you know, that's, that's one thing, but then, and then there are parts of our County that are on the complete other end of the scale. And they're, they're really politically tied to California's central Valley and a whole different kind of uh, political culture. And so we're made up of, you know, a, a diverse political culture, uh, but because we're so remote and because we have to kind of rely on ourselves in a lot of ways, um, we've had, you know, we've had our own local process of working through that and, and the whole 
the whole thing is still is still in a work in progress, but it really, the goal is to answer the question, you know, and how can, how can we have an ethical uh, cannabis industry in Trinity County and, and solve some of these legacy issues while still supporting uh, our, you know, our small ethical farmers who are, who are producing medicine. And, and a lot of us are producing, you know, regeneratively grown organic, uh, environmentally sustainable medicine and and we want to get it out to people so it there's still you know work to be done there but we have come a long way as a county uh, recognizing that this is part this is here it's not going anywhere and it's up to us to envision and implement what that should look like so uh there continue to be um enforcement operations in Trinity against the, against outlaw growers? There, yes. And there, you know, that, that remains uh, in the, that's like the sheriff's office versus it's not, it's like, like not part of it. So there's licensed cannabis and, and there's a whole like enforcement wing to that checks on those farms. And then there's the whole other side of it of enforcing on illicit activities. If somebody's not if somebody's doing unpermitted activities and the focus has mostly come through um, when when there's really serious water issue like if they're drawing surface water from streams or um, altering streams and lake beds and doing you know egregious environmental acts on the watersheds that's usually where the agencies focus their enforcement activities and so I think that has been one of the positive outcomes of this is that we're seeing the focus on our watersheds. And if you're doing something you really shouldn't be doing, that's there's starting to be a way to really deal with that, both on public and private lands. I, I think we're doing more on the local level on private lands than I'm seeing being done on public lands. And I think federally we have a long way to go with dealing with that, those issues. Uh, and that's a whole other a whole other situation. <laughs> and in Trinity County, that's very much a part of, you know, a part of our reality is, is it might be that everybody on your watershed is a good actor, but at the top of that watershed, there's a national forest land, public land, and that's not, that's not in our jurisdiction or our wheelhouse to protect. And, and, and those resources are, are hard to communicate. You know, it's hard, it's hard when you're dealing with the federal government, that's a whole other thing. Well, I imagine the, the sheriff's department cooperates with both the state and federal authorities in terms of going after, uh, you know, growers who are trespassing on the federal forest, on the national forest lands. They do, and they do address, you know, some, and it's, it's never, it's never seems to be enough. And yet, how is it that every, all this, all the funding is for enforcement and it's, it's a very complex, you know, regulation of all this and it, enforcement as a mechanism, all of it is very complex when you try and look at real solutions. And, and you know, I have to look to people with more wisdom than myself to really put all the pieces Meanwhile, together. Meanwhile, the county we... authorities have got a, uh, a, a positive relationship with the, with the licensed growers at this point? I think so, yes. I think yeah. we've built a lot of, you know, bridges over over time. And I think I think now we've had six years of licensed permitted cannabis in Trinity County. And so we've had an opportunity to really demonstrate that we are just regular 
law-abiding <laughs> citizens who happen to grow cannabis alongside our tomatoes and and you know really really trying to normalize it as much as possible and and just be able to come out in our own community i mean it was really a very much a coming out we we live in this tiny tiny community there's only so many people everybody knows each other there's 14,000 people in the entire county so we have towns of like 350 roughly in my town up to like maybe 3 right. 3 or 4,000 is our biggest uh, city. Right. I mean, there's still no traffic uh, signal anywhere in Trinity County, is there? There's That's one. There's I one. have to tell you, Bill, got our first traffic light in Trinity County. It was a big deal. And ah. it just, it was just, it's there now. It's there. We have one. We have one in traffic light in on the 299 in Weaverville. Yeah. And, you know, well, I, I guess maybe part of the idea was maybe to get people to go ahead and stop in Weaverville, which is really a gem of a place. It's a lovely, historic, real, real historic town and kind old of rush. rush era. Yeah. yeah, it's a lovely place to have to stop. But uh, I have when, mixed when, feelings when, about the traffic light. When did they put in the traffic light, just out of curiosity? It, I think it was like a month it was like four or six weeks ago. It was really oh, recent. Oh, wow, that recently, wow. Yeah. wow. It was wow. really recent. <laughs> and so it's still big, big news. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh. Yeah, a lot okay, of mixed but, uh, reviews on that. As California counties go, I mean, Trinity has actually got, uh, you know, compared to some other counties, it's got a fairly uh, cooperative stance towards, um, towards small growers. I mean, I know, you know, it's been a really terrible situation unfolding in, uh, in Siskiyou, which is the next county to the north, with some really bad um, uh, enforcement actions there, and they don't—they yes. don't even allow outdoor growing there. I understand. No, they don't, and so yeah. that's exactly right. You're you're spot on with that example, and that's our neighbor, and it's not that different, but it is different enough. And and you know, in Trinity, we're fairly we're fairly pragmatic, and I think the way we approach our local policy. We don't have a lot of resources to work with. We have to get to the bottom of it and just, you know, prioritize uh, what's really at stake. And so uh, we're fortunate right now that we have a really, really dedicated board of supervisors who I think are all, are all despite their political, uh, where they stand, I think they're all really, uh, really committed to seeing how this can just work in our communities because they understand the reality of the situation in our communities that this is part part of what it, what it's like to live here and we have to figure out how to deal with it and 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 this whole war on drugs and prohibition mentality just doesn't work and we know that we've seen it we've seen the consequences of it for generations now and so i think at this point we're just we have to deal with it and we're ready to deal with it and thank god you know, our local, our local elected officials are committed to that and in a fair and equitable way. And I think our small farmers have shown, have really shown a lot over the last six years of what, what, a, what a strong, ethical, sustainable farming community can do for, for an overall community and the benefits that can come from that. Um, a, alongside a strong tax base, which is one thing, but you you have really a, the ability to see how this can really positively impact a community 
And I think that is where our community has kind of come together to realize that, hey, we, we can't like, we can't punish people who are trying to do the right thing and starting to see the bias in the situation and trying to get past that. And so that's, that's been really momentous for us here in Trinity. And I hope that, you know, over time it will become easier in places where it's politically more challenging, but, but in California, until things change federally, I think we're still in a position of having to allow local control over certain things. And politically, this is still one of those things that depending on where you're at, you're, you're going to be facing uh, still total prohibition and a, a ban on legalization, essentially. Okay, well, for instance, uh, you mentioned uh, Big Sur. What's the situation in uh, in Monterey County? Less less tolerant, less open. Well, it depends which part of Monterey County, because if you're talking Salinas or other parts of Monterey, you're talking huge mass mass scale production yeah, being yeah, permitted. Yeah. But when you're talking small artists, you know, artisanal legacy farmers in Big Sur or uh, Carmel Valley, there's no pathway, there's no permitting of, of small farms right now in those areas. Oh, and there have been- How that works. I mean, how, how is that able to, you've got this sort of like agribusiness model emerging in the same county where there isn't a pathway for, uh, for small legacy producers to get legal? How does that work bureaucratically? I'm not, I'm not quite getting my head around this. I know, I know. It's taken me six years to get to this point, Bill. It's because the state has its own program and you can apply for that license, but every local city or county, whatever rules over where you live, whatever the smallest level of that is of government still gets to decide if they want to implement that legalization or not. So you can essentially opt out of legalization in California, any city or county can. Right. And so politically it's up to each individual place to have the political push and uh, support in their local government to implement some sort of program. And then they have to develop a mechanism for permitting, going through this permitting process, which you know most of these counties don't have the resources or the staff to suddenly launch, you know, they're used to having the permits of however many new homes, however many new developments each year, however many new projects that are in their entire area each year of all kinds. And suddenly they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of farms that all need to go through this process at the same time. And, and it, it just can't happen that way. So it's, but that's the way it was written to be carried out. And so it's partly that there's political pushback um, on small, small farms because they're typically in maybe like neighborhoods where there's uh you know they're not maybe in like large at big ag big right. commercial right. Ag right. areas right. they're in like small ag areas homestead kind of scale or maybe a little bigger than that but sm still small farm scale and so there's a lot of political uh land use local land use issues that you have to get through there's also um no in in these local jurisdictions and cities and counties they didn't have cannabis as part of their like general plan because it wasn't it's it wasn't legal and general plans are only updated 
every decade or a few decades <laughs> in reality. So uh, it, there's no definition for applying it to our local perm land use principle. Like there's no way to like apply it to our local land use ordinances that are already in existence. So we ah. have to write whole new sets of rules and that on every level. One would think that would have happened by now. I mean, because- Well, you would have thought, it, it has. And there's this thing in California. So there's this thing called the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA. And uh, it's something that pertains only to new development, but because of the way the rules kind of have played out, it's basically being applied to all cannabis. And, uh, and so even existing producers are kind of having to go through this analysis of how they fit into the California Environmental Quality Act. And anybody who's doing new development is under this kind of whole process of um, having to really, I mean, you're talking about tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in just like specialists and surveys and data and documentation of your site and and then going through this whole process of review which requires public hearing bodies and public noticing and appeal processes and so on both the applicant side and the local government side it's this huge process to get a pre-existing small cannabis farm permitted in California Okay, because even if it's pre-existing, it's still, it's, it's only now coming online legally, so it's still considered to be new under the law. Right, and it's this whole, it's exactly, it's the, the language of the law, and there are exemptions for existing facilities, and there's a very small percentage of farms that might maybe do fall under that, but it's still a gray area, and there's vulnerabilities there, and so there's there's liability for lawsuits, things like that have played out in Trinity County that have also stalled or created obstacles to the process. And so um, the, the CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act has been used, has been weaponized in the past, you know, as a way of stopping projects from going through and it may or may not have merit. And so when you look at that compounded with the bias behind cannabis production in, in certain communities, there's there's a lot at play there and it ends up having to play out in the courtroom and it costs a lot of money on all sides. All right, so how and is it, CEQA, how yeah. and, and where, what parts of the states has CEQA been, been weaponized and, and by whom exactly, by what, what, what interests? Well, Right now, what we're seeing is anti-cannabis groups essentially um, wanting to, and, and in some ways they, they want to see legitimate environmental protections at play, but they, they're using the California Environmental Quality Act to stop all cannabis in places where it's maybe just that, it's not necessarily that the people are not on a parcel that that is allowed agricultural or commercial uses to typically, it's just that the people in that neighborhood don't want a cannabis farm there. And so they're using the California Environmental Quality Act as a means to create obstacles towards that applicant's ability to farm there or to you know, get, get through their permitting process. Hmm. Okay, and meanwhile, I mean, you know, you mentioned the Salinas Valley where I imagine, you know, large tracts of land, which has traditionally been under the control of agribusiness, 
is being converted from growing um, asparagus or garlic to growing cannabis, but they are uh, not considered to I be. I think it's. Go ahead. Sorry, I think it's more in their in the flower, the old flower houses, the greenhouses that used to produce. Uh, I think uh, flowers, but uh, but I think there are also other types of ag that are being converted, but I think a lot of it is in the old flower houses. But please continue, uh -huh. sorry. Well, but my question is, that, you know, are they sort of like being grandfathered in, so to speak, under, um, under the uh, California Environmental Quality Act because they're not considered to be new, that this was land which was already recognized as being under agricultural production? I haven't looked at how so their local the whole process is kind of it's up to each. So the lead agency for for review of CEQA is is going to be your whoever's doing your local discretionary review process. So it might be the city or the state, depending or sorry, yeah. the county, depending yeah. on where you are. Uh, and so I think in Monterey County, Salinas, there there may be different uh, lead agencies, but everybody does have to go through CEQA. The 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 thing about it that kind of comes to play is that um, it just depends on whether there's any sort of appeal, any, anybody trying to appeal or oppose that development. And so there's a public noticing process that allows people in that area to uh, speak out against the project. So CEQA is usually used like if a developer is going to take like a, a a hillside or a, you know a, an area that's totally undeveloped and that looks just like natural and they're going to put a subdivision there. That's the kind of thing that CEQA is normally used for but it's being applied here to people's you know homestead parcels where they happen to grow weed and are trying to get a permit for their small fa cannabis farm and so um, it's very complicated to apply that process to those people. And how what, what arguments are being brought to bear in terms of how they're in violation of the law? or potentially in violation of the law? Well, so in Trinity County, uh, they they had kind of, it was, I thought the case was winnable for the county. Uh, they ended up settling with this group. So we didn't have an opportunity to play that part out in court. Uh, but uh, the basically it was these, it was that we weren't going through the process fast enough and that we weren't being stringent enough with the standards that we were requiring people to mitigate. And But at the end of the day, when you look at all of the documentation for the lawsuit and the settlement agreement and what was behind it and what they want, what they want is they don't want cannabis. And so it, it becomes a question of whether they're really concerned about environmental mitigations and well, yes, problems or whether they're just motive. trying to shut down. Apart, apart from their motives, what 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 was the actual legal angle that they were exploiting in this in this case? Um, well, that there was not compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act, and they right, were but basically in, in, in what, in what capacity were, were were they arguing that growers were out of compliance regarding what they were arguing actually that the county was out of compliance not growers necessarily but that no. the county's whole program that so you have to conduct an environmental impact report and it has to include all of the potential impacts and how they can be mitigated and the county took 
two years to conduct this process over all of its all of the whole program, all the applicants cumulatively were looked at and the impacts of that were looked at and it took a two year process, which is pretty typical for CEQA and actually not that long of a time mm -hmm. in reality, but they wanted it done in one year and it took two. So that was a violation there of their original settlement. The county was accused of not carrying out CEQA compliance prior to issuing permits. Wow. However, the state has a provisional licensing program and the intent of that program is that existing operators can come into compliance and provisionally operate while they go through this process so that you don't have to totally stop farming for however many years while you wait for for this process to unfold and and so the state has this program but the county was accused of violating CEQA and so there's this whole there's this whole really argument on both sides. Is it, does the state's provisional program authorize the county to allow operations prior to full CEQA compliance? Because under CEQA law, you have to, you can't do new development until you're all the way compliant with CEQA and your determination is made. But in this case, we're talking about pre-existing facilities. However, they're still being overlaid with CEQA. So it's really complicated. Yeah. And it's not an easy, so, so it, it leads to having to go to court, basically. Okay. And, and who brought this litigation in Trinity? In Trinity, it was uh, the Trinity Action a lot. Trinity Action Association, I believe. And they are, um, they're a group of, it's a community group. And uh, they have said that they're a, uh, their reasons are for environment. They're environmentally focused, supposedly. Uh, they're only focused on cannabis environmentally. Uh, and they brought this lawsuit to the county. Um, I think their membership is primarily from a part of the county that is not necessarily pro-cannabis politically overall. And um, be more of the Eastern end of the county closer to the Central Valley. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they do have okay, um, mechanisms. You can maybe sorry, you can run. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Our, our county did devise mechanisms like opt-out zones and abilities for, uh, and, and also small residential parcels are not allowed to be permitted. You have to have some sort of allowance for small agriculture, small commercial use to have a small permit. and. Most all, most of our permits are small in our county of what we even allow. So they did try to really address this issue, but at the end of the day, this group was not satisfied with the compromise and doesn't seem willing to compromise. And so that's kind of where this court case came from. How would the how would an opt out zone work exactly? I mean, is it the local municipality doesn't go along with the uh, has the ability to bar cannabis growing within their own territory, but I would imagine that, you know, most of the communities in Trinity County are not incorporated anyway. So they're not. How, how does that work jurisdictionally? It's, it's a good question, Bill. Um, it's, there's some sort of overlay process. And I don't know if they use some sort of resource district type of thing, or if what it's based on. And um, 
I would have to look into that a little further. I know that they did spend a long time figuring it out and it's still also in question. And a lot of this comes from the fact that cannabis is not in our general plan and we're, you know, it's going to take a while to update that. So it's, it's, it's like flying the plane while you're building it. County development and resources and, uh-huh. Yep. And zoning uses, like what different, different parcels and communities, the, what the, what the zoning uses are for those parcels and those neighborhoods. All right. So that's the kind of thing that the Trinity County Agricultural Alliance is trying to get um, straightened out, I assume. Right. Yes. Right. It is our primary focus is to get our existing cannabis farmers, small, small craft cannabis farmers, all the way to full licenses. And so this process is part of that. And so right now that's pretty much what we are mostly focused on. Okay, do you wanna talk more about the uh, provisional licenses? How does that work exactly? Because I mean, you've also got licenses which are, which are, which are not provisional. So there's kind of a, a two-tier program. And, Indeed, and is it, it's- Is it for... a state level? This is a state yeah. program, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Yes, so you- you may or may not have to get a local permit and there's each local jurisdiction gets to decide their local permitting situation. And then the state has a program and you have to get that as licensed by the state as well. And there's a provisional license where if you're still in the process of CEQA compliance or, or complying with your local ordinances and you're underway and you can verify that you are underway of this process, uh, you're allowed to operate provisionally at the state level. And depending on your local jurisdiction, it's the intention is to allow operators to be able to operate while they're going through their local permitting process. And you do have to show benchmarks of progress and, and um, your local jurisdiction does have to verify that this progress is taking place, but it gives you kind of like, a few years long uh, ability to get through all of, you might have to do a lot of changes to your site depending on your site conditions. And so if you have to build, change anything about your site, it might take years to implement those mitigation measures. And therefore um, it's a mechanism designed to allow operators who were already existing to come into compliance and come into legalization and not have to stop operating while they do that. Or that's a provision of uh, Malcursa? Yes, and it, yeah. it it's built out in our current regulatory system and um, it's been extended for a few years because it's taking so long on the local level to get through this. Uh -huh. And um, they've also sent grant local grant assistance funding from the state to each of these local jurisdictions that is that has licensees in the pathway right now to try and get everybody all the way through that. All right, there's the whole question of um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the limits on the size of holdings that can be under cannabis cultivation, which uh, I understand, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the large holdings are using loopholes in the law to get around that actually um, accrue, you know, cannabis plantations basically in certain areas of the state. Yes, there are producers that have a million pounds of production now. And the, the way they're doing that, I mean, initially there was an acre, a one acre cap on Malcursa and that went away, kind of like disappeared in the quiet of the night. 
one day and suddenly there was no acre cap, but well, there was on. still a cap. It disappeared in the quiet of the night. Well, what was the actual process by which that cap was done away with? Um, was, was it a regulatory thing or was it actually it, an act it, of the legislature or? It's, I still have questions about how, how that was able to happen because I, it, this is a voter initiative and there was supposed to be a limit of one acre of production per you know, entity for the first few years in order to bring in the existing industry before right. they started exactly. right. licensing this whole thing. So that, that process I think happened more regulatorily than anything. And, and I, don't, I don't know what happened legislatively. It, it got somehow duck into something but, but, that, but that, that cap has been lifted now it goes away in 2023 uh -huh. and also there's but there's the loophole that you were talking about and yeah. and what that is is that you can apply is if you're allowed to by your local you know wherever your local permitting wherever your local area is if you're allowed to do it you can stack as many small licenses as if as you want so you right. could buy many, many one acres and put them all side by side. And so a lot of these big producers just had the uh, capital to go ahead and just apply for many, many licenses to accrue their entire potential area. So there are, there are production sites of hundreds of acres. Right. So then you've got sort of got an ag biz model and economies of scale which are, uh, you know, it's very difficult for the small cultivators to compete with. Indeed. And so there's that coupled with, the, there's not a way for small cultivators to directly access markets on a craft scale, like farmer's markets, for example, or, or something to that effect. And so we're just commodified and lumped into the same supply chain. All, all qualities of cannabis are just, and all sizes and scales of production are just lumped into the same commodity market and supply chain. And it's really difficult for a small farm to, to be a needle in a haystack, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you wanna talk more about that? I mean, how, does, how do you say flower days, how do you actually get your, uh, get your product to the, to the retailers? And how would it work for a, for a large producer in contrast? Well, it's blood, sweat, and tears for us. Uh, so for us, we rely on um, really seeking out producers and producers, or sorry, buyers seek us out, retailers seek us out who have a connoisseur market niche and who are maybe, you know, most of them are located in areas where that, that might exist and um, such as like Sebastopol, will just be an example there. Um, there's a connoisseur market of people who consume cannabis, care about the quality, care about how it was grown, and want to support sustainable outdoor farms in their region and um, are committed to similar you know, principles in the way they buy and source food, for example. Um, so, so we have certain markets of people who are really consumers who really care about how their product is grown, where it comes from, and are looking for small craft farm scale cannabis and for really high quality connoisseur products. And so for us, you know, it's 
it's really about having to do the work, the legwork to connect with the right people and, and find each other. And then we have to work our way through the supply chain to each of those people. And if they're not in the same location, then it's likely a whole different supply chain to get it there. And it, it becomes really um, challenging on you know the small scale to achieve all of these at an efficient uh, cost. So uh, you end up with, with really a difficult path for the for the eighth jar to get from the farm onto the shelf where where before small farmers used to be able to work directly with retailers and self-distribute and and you would have to vertically integrate and have an incredible amount of capital to um, to become a vertically integrated company just to be able to do that. So most of the really small artisanal scale farms that were producing before and a lot of the really highest quality, really, really connoisseur cannabis is kind of st stuck from reaching its consumers in, an, in any really feasible way. All right, well, well first when you say before, you mean before Prop 64, before legalization? Before Prop 64, yes, when we were in the 215 era and uh, med we had medical cannabis and it was, you know, a smaller scale, uh, but you had the ability as a farmer to go dis directly to the dispensary and work directly with the retailer. And currently under Prop 64, under our current system in California, when you uh, you cannot, the product cannot leave the farm unless it's on a licensed transport vehicle. And so somebody has to have the licensed transport license, the licensed distribution, the licensed laboratory. They can't, the farmer cannot take it to the lab. The farmer cannot take it to distribution without licensed transport. And that's just the first step. All right. So, but how does that first step actually work? For instance, in your case, if you can, if you can talk about it, What's the actual process by which the uh, the product gets from from your farm in High and Palm to the dispensary in Sebastopol, and where along you know who, whose licensed vehicle takes it there? Uh, at what point of the process does it get tested, etc.? So it it's it's picked up by a licensed distributor. I don't have a self transport license. I that would require like capital. I don't personally have. So my farms. Production also is is the full out outdoor full season cannabis crops. So we're not constantly cranking out production throughout the whole year. We're really focused on an artisanal product, and so we rely on distribution. And we have a great meaning kind of outdoor sun grown. When when you say artisanal, you mean outdoor sun grown, I mean, and therefore you know therefore only harvested small scale at this time of year. Yeah and only this time of year. Right. And so right. I, I had, I have some, but I have some distributors who I work with and they're based in Humboldt and in, they're based in Southern Humboldt and they're closer to, you know, the, where the supply chain connects. And so they actually come all the way out to High and Palm in their licensed transport vehicle. And then the crop will be uh, taken. I mean, it's already dried and it's, it's packaged bulk, leaves the farm uh, they have really excellent climate control. They basically take really good care of it. They have buyers who care about finding this per particular kind of product. And so uh, then e from there, it either goes to, um, depending, we have some retail partners who, who 
really care about sourcing our product and who we've built relationships with over time. And so in that case, we make the effort to get batches to, to them. And then if there's any batches not spoken for, then our distributor will, you know, then their respective buyers will, will bid for that or um, make offers on that. And, um, and so really when it leaves the farm, it's still kind of got to go to market. And some of it is spoken for, a lot of it is spoken for in our case before it leaves the farm, because otherwise we really wouldn't have a way to just wing it on the commodity market as a tiny producer of outdoor. <laughs> so um, we still have to rely on those relationships and then figure out the logistics with partners who who have the same alignment well, when, when in their you say wing it on the commodity market, what would that actually mean? That would mean that the distributor, uh, you know, sort of buys it from you uh, and then takes responsibility for, um, for, for marketing it himself or in some cases in some cases yes and in some cases no but just uh to be lumped into i mean you'd have to be producing whatever everybody else is and and usually our production our scale is just not even sufficient for those markets like they need however many hundreds or thousands of pounds every few weeks or months and so um that's a whole different scale than than we're talking about on our farm. And uh, we're not really interested in, in producing that kind of medicine. So for us, it's really about, about the medicine and about the quality of it. And, and so for us, it's about having to figure when, when out you that kind how of to make that work. When you say that kind of medicine, you mean uh, the kind that's mass produced on that scale? Yes, that's mass produced versus really like intimately cared for on a yeah. scale where there's a different relationship between the cultivator and the plants. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's uh, three entities involved here in this um, supply chain. There's uh, you, the grower, there's the, uh, the, the, the retailer, and mm -hmm. uh, then there's the distributor, which takes it from one entity to the other. Yes. Yeah. And also to, to lab testing, the distributor is kind of the the ones who are responsible for transporting it to, to with, with, they, they work with the lab and the lab either picks it up at distro um, is usually the case, but you know, there's different, as long as it's licensed transport, there's ways that, that it can get legally to the laboratory. And then the distributor handles that once it's got a lab test result attached to it, then uh, it can be, kind of exchanged in custody to, you know, it could be sold to another brand, a brand, another distributor or a retailer. So, so uh, in this case, it would be the distributor who was actually contracting the laboratory? It depends. There's all different ways for that contracting process to work. And um, there's not one way it has to be. There's yeah. a lot of cases where the farm has to pay for the laboratory testing ahead of time and then wait and see who wants to buy it. But it, without the lab test, it's hard to sell it. So um, you really need some sort of lab testing. Um, and some buyers will buy something with just an R&D test. Some want a full, a full COA a certificate okay. of- What R&D and what COA? So the research and development test is like, you could get a, a, a little sample tested and it's not an official test of the whole batch. Uh, the whole batch has to be tested before it can be put into the, mar the market to be sold. And it, it has to 
be basically quarantined and then randomly pulled by the lab and then taken to the lab and tested. And then once it's passed it, the whole batch is released from quarantine. And so then that batch is fully tested and then it can be ready for mark, you know, sold to market. But an, a regular R&D or research and development test is just an initial test of what, what the, you know, general profile is, what, what you can test to make sure it's gonna pass its full batch test before you send the whole batch into testing. But it's not the official test that allows the batch to enter the market for sale. All right, now what's the, uh, the acronym you're using for the official test that allows it to enter the market? It's a COA, COA? it's a certificate, yeah. It's like an official certificate. Um, certificate that, of authenticity or something? I think so, yeah, something like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, in, in any event, in your case, just for instance, it would be the, uh, the distributor who takes responsibility for, uh, for contracting the laboratory and doing the testing. That's right. And so usually we rely on the distributor to, you know, they have a preferred, they might have a preferred lab in their area that they're used to working with. And so usually that process is already kind of worked out with the distributor does that with the lab. And so, yeah, we rely on them for that. And, and we really rely on them from the moment it leaves the farm on, even if we have a retail buyer or somebody who's already wanting that product or or even has a purchase order for it or a contract for it ahead of time, we still need to rely on everybody in the middle to get it there all the way to the end. Okay, now there's, there's already labs which are established within the Emerald Triangle at this point, I would imagine. It's not like you have to bring it down to the Bay Area in order to get tested. There, there are some labs and there are some labs in like the Shasta area, Reading area as well. And, and so on both sides, we have some access to, to labs. We don't have a laboratory in Trinity, but we're able to go not too far. Sometimes it, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just depending on who, who your distribution network is and where, you know, where they're based, where, how far it's really going to travel. And a lot of times, the farmer is just thinking about um, who's going to be able to pay them, <laughs> not so much where it's going to end up in reality is, is what it's come to, you know. Okay, but most of what, um, what leaves your farm, you already know where the, where the retailer is. You already know that the retailer is already contracted for the product. Yeah, for, for a lot of our product and for the majority of it, we do try and produce uh, beyond that to keep being able to expand our markets and to be able to, you know, participate in special events and, uh, and also for delivery services, because we do have a lot of consumers who, who do look for us. And so we do have a fairly decent delivery market where, you know, we're constantly trying to look for partners in different parts of the state to reach different, to, to be able to reach different consumers. Okay, but you say there still isn't any provision for like a, a farmer's market type model? Not yet. But we, no, we, we, there's we've seen, not. We've seen stuff like that happening, maybe in a kind of a, a legal gray zone, but nonetheless, you know, I've seen, you know, photos of farmer's markets in, in California. There's 
There are some mechanisms to do it. And we've seen some retail dispensaries that have taken on that model and really been um, really supportive of passing value back to the farmer. Um, Humboldt Urban Market is a really great example of that. And she has, man Crystal Ortiz, the owner has managed to create a farmer's market model through her dispensary and really be able to create um, good farmer market access and get the value of the product back to the farm. Um, there's also uh, special events licenses. And so there are ways that events can create farmer's markets. And I think that legislation will hopefully be coming in the next um, couple years to address some of these uh, market access issues for small farmers, particularly in respect to farmer's markets and how, how there can be a framework for that type of event you know, across the state, just so that it's an easier um, way to go about it than people having to really take it upon themselves to figure out how to achieve that model. Mm -hmm. But as things stand now, generally when that kind of a farmer's market type atmosphere exists, it's, uh, it's actually the retailer who would be operating the stand as opposed to the grower. In right now, that's how it is. And so the only, this particular retailer is, is just, uh, she she's from the Humboldt growing community and and so I think she has taken it upon herself to be to to kind of be that kind of model but it's it's definitely not the norm and it's it's through her retail license and she has to have gotcha. a retail gotcha. space brick and mortar in order to be able to even do that and and so yeah there's no real way for farmers to have farmers markets yet uh huh. Okay, but uh, oh, so this operation in Humboldt. I mean, she's actually taking uh, taking product to a local farmers market in um, in Eureka. No, or, uh, no, she's just creating a a farmers market at her dispensary, so that a cannabis farmers market, so that when you walk in the door, you're actually in suddenly in like a farmers market, and and the farmers will often be there to. Um, it, you, you know, she tries to create a pathway through her distribution where the product can come farm direct to her retail space, but she's basically turned her dispensary into a farmer's market for, uh -huh. um, as a, as the model for how it, how the dispensary is, is working. Uh-huh. But okay. But in order to get there, it can't just be brought there by the farmer. It's got to be brought there by a, a oh. licensed distributor. It still has to go through all of that same channels. Uh -huh. yep. So, so it doesn't, it's not, not really saving money. Apart from, Sorry? I'm not quite getting what the distinction is here then, apart, apart from the farmer actually being on hand and, uh, and you know, the stuff being set up in a farmer's market kind of atmosphere. I mean, in terms of how it all works, uh, you know, legally and financially, I'm not sure I'm, I'm seeing the distinction. So the, the distinction is small, but there is one. Um, and I know it's like, so what's so, how is it different? Well, in her case, she's giving the farmer a better wholesale price ah. and, and trying to achieve a distribution network or channel where they can, you know, the packaging and processing and, and middle costs are, are more efficient and then she's actually just taking less mm -hmm. on the retail end and giving the farmer more. And okay. so a lot of where the farmer loses is because the market is based on the commodity price. 
regardless of what it's going for to what, regardless of what the retail dispensary is buying it from the distributor for in a packaged jar or what the consumer is buying it for off the shelf, the farmer is just getting whatever the price is at the time. And it doesn't, it, what happens to the rest of the money in between, I do not know. It's not coming back to the farm. Uh -huh. <clears throat> okay, do you wanna speak more about um, the difference between a uh, under California law of, of uh, an agricultural crop and an agricultural product with cannabis being in the latter category? Yes, so in, in the agricultural crop model is, is that I think that it's more of a product that comes kind of whatever form it is in the field is how it leaves and goes out into whatever is gonna to happen to it next. And so it's, it's not being processed in any way on the farm. Um, cannabis really should fall into this category as far as the cannabis farm, but it was defined in our law as a product, which means it is further uh, processed in a way that kind of kicks it into a more industrial commercial category rather than just, it's just an agricultural activity. It also has industrial commercial implications to it as far as like it's being manufactured or processed or something else. It's, it's, it's being turned into something else from its the way it was cut in the field. And so it's kind of inaccurate for, for most mm. farms that that's not accurate. That's manufacturing, which is a whole other license type. So uh, it, it kind of kicked us into this category where basically what we're being uh, having to comply with on a regulatory standpoint is like the equivalent of applying for a permit for like an industrial mining operation. And so it's not really easy to apply that to a small farm that's actually just an outdoor farm. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, but I mean, the, the permit actually comes from the Department of Cannabis Control, correct? Yep, so that's right. Originally there was, Cal Cannabis was a department within the California Department of Food and Ag, but it, it was actually removed from there into a consolidated cannabis agency. And so- now CURSA that took place. This just actually just took place this year, a oh, couple yeah? months ago in July, I believe was the official uh, formation of the Department of Cannabis Control, but it, it, it's through our same Malcursa Prop 64 law. It was uh, just uh, kind of an evolution um, on the regulatory end. And so they took they, they originally had these different agencies. And so cultivation was under CDFA under its own Cal Cannabis Department. And then there was, uh, if you were a manufacturer, you were under the Department of Public Health. If you were a retailer, you were, or a distributor, you were under the Bureau, the Bureau of Cannabis Control. And then they took all of those and they combined them into the Department of Cannabis Control. So they took it out of public health and CDFA and these places where it was kind of added on to other similar activities that already existed and put into its own special agency for the whole, all kinds of cannabis production, whether it's cultivation or retail. Uh-huh. 
Okay, a couple of questions. Uh, this happened, uh, again, this happened uh, through uh, an act of uh, the legislature or this was just done through regulatory mechanisms? It, I believe it was more just regulatory and I don't know, I have to go back and read if there was, if they had to do any legislative action yeah, to make Google it happen. That, yeah, yeah um, it. Go ahead. If, you know, if there was a bill attached to it, um, but but it it kind of it did go through like all these um public they did set put the regulations out for public review and have all the review periods and different things so um i i i think it's one of those things that it qualified as something that could be done either regulatorily or perhaps there was a legislative component to allow it that to happen, but it wasn't changing anything about Prop 64, which is a voter initiative. So yeah. there's things about it that can't just be changed. But that was something that was just about the way it was being regulated, not not right. anything about the law itself. So it well, just took all those agencies involved. and made them into one. Right. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just just to be clear, when you talk about manufacturing, you're talking about uh, production of edibles or uh, extracts or hash or whatnot. Yes, all of those fall under manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's different license types within there. Yeah, but uh, you're you're not doing any of that. You're just producing flour. Well, we can't. We used to do single source water hash on the farm, but we don't have oh, yeah. in our in Trinity County. We don't have the right zoning to do what that's now considered manufacturing. Um, and we, we actually developed a method to just do dry sifting and be able to still have a full melt product. And so we're not using water anymore. We're, we're doing a dry sift and still being able to produce on the farm because we're allowed from the farm, we're allowed to do flour and, and keef type products. So you can, you could, you know, in our case, we were able to work around that by just being able to provide um, provide our full melt as a dry sift and it it works it's awesome it's been really good for us as a farm to have to go through that but it also was like we're not allowed to do a lot of the things we used to produce on the farm because we don't have the ability to manufacture on the farm okay so when, when you say uh, uh used to meaning before prop 64 back under the 215 right during during 215 yeah. we could make um our own products on the farm and take them to the dispensary. And we would have them tested, um, but but we were able to do that just direct from the farm and we were able to do that on the farm. Uh, so under that model, under the 215 model, who was doing the testing? Because then there wasn't you know, this uh, mandatory uh, licensed distributor provision. So at that point, the testing would have been done by the retailer or by you, the grower, or one, either one or the other, it doesn't matter. It would be either one or the other, and it was kind of more up to the dispensary, you know, and yeah. and it wasn't a requirement. So it was, we we always did it for our product, and then oftentimes the dispensary would would retest the batch once it was received on their end, and that's what they would, you know, put on their label, and they would say it was tested. It wasn't required to be tested, but the laboratories, a lot of them that were in existence at the time are the same, a lot of them did. Um, we we have worked with some of the same labs uh, that were already in, in existence before. 
So okay, it's not that the science of labs has, there, there are more requirements now by the state as to what specific pesticides, herbicides, there's a long list of, right. of things that are now tested for. And so I, I don't remember in the 215 days how much of that was built out on the herbicide pesticide end, um, but we used to get it tested for potency and terpenes and for uh, purity and for you know not having any herbicides or pesticides. Now all of that is required by law, of course. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It sure is. You want to talk about uh, more about those? Just out of curiosity, those uh, those products that you, uh, in some cases, were producing, and in some cases, continue to. What was the kind of uh, the hashish you were producing back in two fifteen days? What did you call it? Um, source. My husband, he would do. Yeah, it was water. It was just water hash, but you know, single source where the hash maker was the grower. And, oh, and it all came from that same place all the way from start to finish, as uh -huh. opposed to taking product from farms and then washing it somewhere. So it was, um, it was pro you know, it was basically everything that we use to produce our cannabis we make on the farm with, with either wild crafted or cultivated plants or our animals, manure systems and composting systems, everything we make ourselves. And so everything from the start of the product to the end of the product was totally handmade on the farm. And, uh, and it was really, really supposed to be just the purest, highest quality medicine. That was our goal always. And so we had, my husband has a, a passion and love for, for hashish. And so he, he washes hash as a, you know, just something he has always loved to do. And he cultivates his flowers. We, we really think about our resin production, not just, you know, when we're looking at the flowers and the ripeness and, and what we're, what we're uh, growing for and what we select for genetically, the resin is really important. And the way that that resin melts and, um, and how it performs as a hash product is, is, is kind of part of our focus or always has been. So, um, it was hard to, in our case, separate that from that element from our production and then have to figure out how to, you know, still put out what we do to the consumer. Uh, and, uh, I'm so, so, but the actual, there's an actual legal obstacle to, to doing that on your farm today, correct? Yeah, we can't do that on our farm today. We can dry sift it and we have worked out how to do a really, really excellent dry sift method where it's essentially this, the same thing. You end up with with just the the resin and um, and so we have a full melt well, that's, that's key, product that we can still make. All right, so that's uh, when you talk about dry sifting, that's producing keef basically, right? It's producing keef, but it's on a whole other level where uh, you're cleaning it to, you're really sifting it by size of heads and um, you're, you're going through the sifting, sieving process in a way where you end up with the same thing as if you had washed your different bags of hash, except for when you do it when, dry. When you say washed, what, what exactly does that mean, <laughs> washing? When you context. do the ice water extraction. So I'm talking, when I say wash, I mean ice water extraction mm -hmm. and versus, versus, so you're sieving it through ice water versus 
with that, that's part of the separation process versus doing it with a dry sifting process, right. which separating, also, separating resin from uh, herbaceous material. From all the other material, yep. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, trying to get a really uniform, really clean product where there's no uh, other like little bits of stuff left, basically. Right. So the the end product of what you're uh, marketing now is uh, would basically be powder. It'd be like it'd be crystals. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and amazing. yeah, it is, it's amazing. And it, it's still a way for us to be able to, you know, showcase what, what the uniqueness of our product is and, and bring, be able to have consumers really appreciate what we're trying, what, what our focus is, you know, at the end of the day, we want that consumer to enjoy that full melt hash experience the right way. And so, um, it, it's, it has given us a pathway to doing that. It, it still remains a challenge to do it all efficiently from a small producer out to this complex, you know, system that we're working under. All right, so do we wanna talk a bit about, um, about market conditions and, and the price differential between the, the legal and the illicit market and how the, the price is just, um, as just I understand, completely plummeted under the over the past year or so, right? Is that, that yes? Yeah. Yes, I'm. I mean, I think the price is is lower on all markets from what I from what I have gathered. It it seems like there's definitely a you can see as things drop. There's you know the the licensed market and the illicit market, and there's this gap in between. And it's quite a bit lower, but they've both, I think, gone down um, significantly in the last year. I think for some people, it was it had already outdoor growers had already kind of seen a big plummet, and this year we saw it happen with light deprivation as well, which had his, historically until now kind of kept a little bit higher uh, market value. Um, you want, do you want to then, explain that term, light deprivation? So light deprivation or light dep is is cannabis that's being um, grown in greenhouses and they just use light deprivation to flower at any time of year. And so they can continuously flower crops inside of uh, light controlled environments. And so it's it's it might still be sun grown part of um, and then just either it might be light assisted or it might be sun grown and then light deprivation covers the light and triggers flowering early. So they might still be sun grown flowers, but they're in a greenhouse environment where they're able to flower at any given time with light control. So um, basically it's a crop that is produced at any, that can be flowered at any time of the year. Hmm. And so those farmers we're kind of seeing a price in between indoor and outdoor. And in California, indoor cannabis has held a much higher price than outdoor on the commodity market and, and light deprivation kind of fell in the middle. And this, this year we saw yet another real significant plummet, mostly in the outdoor and light debt market and, and not so much in the indoor from what I can tell. Okay, I would have thought that uh, you know the the connoisseurs want outdoor, and that uh, you know there's kind of a cachet around uh, you know sun grown organic product. 
and yet the uh, the indoor is actually getting the higher price. Yes, well, right now, part of the problem is there's no differentiation in the outdoor market between like really small scale outdoor and just any scale, any size right. or scale. And so it's it's based less on less on scale and just happens to be based on whether it was grown outdoor or not, which kind of is is a big myth or fallacy that comes from probably the the 215 and pre 215 days when the best weed was I mean that everything was like a one to four light indoor you know and that was that was the smallest scale and there was so much attention to detail and the outdoor 50 plant garden was the big crop and so there was a different you know it's all shifted a lot and and so there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of combination of myths and misinformation and also just historical traditional trends that have created this idea that indoor is is somehow you know this higher priced product Mm -hmm. and it does cost more I I imagine to produce because of light requirements but um you know it's a lot less it's carbon footprint is a lot heavier of course Um, estimably so yes yeah and and consumers also I, I think you're right. I think a lot of consumers want to see a natural, sun-grown, organic product that, um, and that should have its own value in the marketplace. But currently, it, there is no differentiation for those producers versus just any, you know, any scale producer. Well, and yet there, there is in terms of the marketing. I mean, you're, you know, marketing your product as, uh, uh, as, as a, uh, a boutique kind of specialty product, no? Yes, indeed. And, and it, there is, you know, the, exactly the ability to market to consumers and to talk about exactly what you're doing. And people do find you if they care about that. The problem then comes later where, you're still kind of forced as a small farm to figure out all of these channels for then reaching those consumers. And there's not a way, for example, to, to have a CSA from the farm and ship right. your product out to people. <laughs> Community supported agriculture, CSA? Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how, how would that work for, uh, for cannabis in your, in your vision? I think we need to be able to ship cannabis directly to consumers. I think they need to be able to get it on the farm if they wanted to visit it. And, and I think farmers markets would be really integral. Um, CSA is just a different, you know, instead of a farmer's market, it's, it's kind of more farm direct to consumer, but it's a way for consumers to essentially be members of, of that, of that CSA and kind of, reserve their their place and and when you think of like the way a a craft winery might operate and and you know if they're only producing so many um if if you if you look at that i mean it's not an exact alignment of an example but it's a similar example of just any any really small scale producer that has a product that um they they have certain market niche or certain consumers that appreciate and want to find that quality of product. And it, it's part of their basically economic sustainability to be able to reach 
those consumers more directly. Yeah. And, and it's hard for those consumers to find, to source. It's hard to source these kinds of things in general in our society. And you, you do have to find, you know, farms directly if you, or farmers markets, or, you know, you really have to take the time to source your food if you, if you're looking for food of that level. And, and so but currently, it's similar challenges. Currently the law does not permit it with cannabis, correct? Currently it does not permit it. Yeah. Right. And meanwhile, there's this ridiculous price differential between uh, the uh, legal and illicit markets, no, where it's, um, it's it, the uh, people are going to keep going to the illicit market if the price is much higher on the legal market. Yep. And I think we're seeing the price finally start to see more of a spectrum of price on the shelves to consumer on the legal market because of that, because uh, it, it was really creating a lack of access, which is totally crushing to the whole purpose and was really affecting, I think, the ability of legal shops to really gain traction across the state. And I think people have lost trust and retailers had to respond to that, that, you know, like, where do you find where do you find the good weed? Everybody wants to know. And I think consumers, you know, like they, they demand access. And I think we need to really figure out in California how to make sure we get it to them. Okay. And for uh, small growers such as yourself, I mean, as, as your um, economic situation improved since Prop 64, I hope. Um, unfortunately, I would have to say for the majority of us, it has not. I think we're seeing really high costs for compliance that maybe someday will will balance out, but right now are very exorbitant. And then we're seeing that coupled with, you know, market prices plummeting and the challenges of the legal market having such small amount of retail right now that's actually fully licensed. We have way more cultivation licensed than what we can sell in California. So there's a huge uh, funnel of product that's just basically there's this, it's a horrible situation that's kind of needs to be balanced out. And so for the small farm, uh, we're seeing, we're seeing people have, have to really actually completely rethink their business models. And thankfully for a lot of us, our costs are really low. And so we can kind of ride the waves. Uh, and we're also, a lot of us have farmed other things and we know how much a pound of tomatoes goes for. And so, you know, you, you may have to keep being flexible, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that small farmers can't make it, but, but the, the conditions are really not in their favor. And I think it is really impacting most farmers economically. I think it's a hardship situation for a lot of them. Okay, I'm not sure if you're aware of the, uh, the situation here in, um, particularly in New York City, where since we uh, earlier this year, we legalized at the state level. And um, mm -hmm. since then there's been, you know, this real, what, what we're calling a quote unquote open market in uh, on the streets of New York, where the police are really taking a completely hands-off uh, approach, even to street sales, uh, when people are just setting up tables on the streets uh, of uh, where you know selling uh, you know bud and edible, etc., um, extracts, etc. 
but um, the, the price differential between the calls seems to be pretty ridiculous. I mean, at these, um, at these tables that you're being set up here, uh, an eighth is going for like 100. <laughs> Whereas I, you know, I understand that uh, if you round that off into uh, you know, the price per pound, that's about what uh, uh, the, the, the growers are getting out on the West Coast, no? A uh, hundred, a hundred, did you say a hundred dollars an eighth or an yes. ounce? Yes. An eighth? So, yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's so, 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 uh, you know, 800 for an ounce. Yeah, that is not, that is not, that's like, we're not even getting 800 a pound in California right now. Right. Exactly. On the outdoor market. Yeah. We, yeah, we, I mean, that's... We mean the growers. We mean the cultivators like you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's a big... I mean, that's always kind of been a thing in the illicit market was like the price in California on off the farm is this and then the price on the street in New York is that. And right, I mean, that's always kind of been a thing. But, uh, but that's definitely extreme. And I think... I feel like probably if you went back and looked at you know, when alcohol prohibition ended, maybe there was all kinds of craziness for that first, especially first decade or so. It was like just all kinds of crazy shit was happening at the same time. And I, I feel like that's right where we're at right now. It's just like that that's that's gonna be temporary though. I don't I haven't looked at what, what the regulation build out looks like, but I yeah, that's a short lived, I imagine, situation. Right. I think so too. Yeah. Okay, but uh, what I really want to uh, get at here is uh, what uh, concretely, what are you proposing? In terms, what kind of uh, legal or regulatory changes need to happen in the state of California in order to uh, you know, make things more sustainable for um, small legacy producers? What, 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 what are you advocating? What, what's your program? So what we're advocating is there's a couple things that could happen immediately. We could get rid of the cultivation tax, which is $150 a pound. So it's based on like pre-legalization prices. And that, that I think is something that the legislator could immediately resolve. And I think they're looking at that. Um, we need some sort of direct market access for small farms. And I think that's going to be a process because the brick and mortar retailers like in the city of LA, for example, will have to, it'll have to work for everybody to some degree. We, you know, nobody needs to be cut out. There's not enough retail at all in general. Um, and so those are some elements is just the, the system needs to be balanced out on the retail end and the retail access still needs to be there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of little things, but it would require such a huge overhaul. And at that point, I think we have to look at the bigger picture, like federally, if things shift, that could create a lot of, a lot of opening for, for changes on the state level and then interstate commerce, even if federally we're not where we wanna be, right. can states form compacts and, and, and do interstate commerce. And, well, and so I, talk about that both uh, on both here in the in the Northeast as well as on the West Coast, and yet the uh, you know the the federal prohibition is an obvious obstacle. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's people working on that. And I think the more states there are on board, I, I think it's strength in numbers on that. And that there, there may be a, an actual vehicle, regardless of where, where it federally sits. I do think that at some point, because the UN did change the schedule for cannabis and all, all of the countries in the UN will have to address that at some point there might there might be more pressure put on put on them to to move more quickly on that. Um, regardless, it's not going to be, you know, what what we're looking at federally is not necessarily a platform for a small <laughs> farmer and small outdoor sun grown farm. Um, but but I think there's room on the state level for for states to to get together and really try and solidify a, a, a means to an end of on at least interstate commerce activities and right and that might be possible with regardless of where we're at on the federal level yeah i see i, I think the federal prohibition is going to be an obstacle to that no matter how you slice it but um unless the feds you know without actually yeah. changing the law just under an enlightened administration knock on wood just decide to take a uh, a completely hands-off approach about, about interstate commerce. But uh, certainly that's one of the things which is uh, forcing people onto the, um, onto the illicit market. That's one of the incentives to get onto the illicit market because you don't have to, you, you, can, you can grow for export. You can grow in California and have the stuff, you know, sent across I-80 to New York, which of course you can't if you're growing on the legal, on the legal market. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a I mean, essentially what I'm talking about here is definitely the long game and it certainly would have challenges. And I don't, I don't know how, how soon we will really see that, but I think that is on the horizon. And I think if there's enough momentum from enough states, it's going to be difficult politically to completely stop all of that from moving forward. But I do think that in the immediate until, I mean, that's the long game. And until then, how do we keep legacy outdoor sun-grown cannabis farms alive is is kind of the the other question and and California you know it tends to have a problem with overregulation and how to it creates these extravagant rules a lot of times for environmental protection reasons or intentions but then the reality of carrying that out is it's it's is a whole other thing and so you know that's part of what we're living in now is is we'll have to look at California Melkers, you know, regulation 2.0, so to speak. And, and, and I don't know how much, I don't really know how much of an appetite there is on the state level to, to revisit it too much because it is a voter initiative and that takes a whole different kind of push than what, you know, a legislator can do. And, and then there's a whole bunch of crises happening right in everywhere in the world. And so, there's a lot of other things on their plate, um, but I think for our legislators, the ones who represent our legacy cannabis producing regions in California, I think they really see the incredible importance of, of cannabis to their communities, economically, culturally, for a lot of reasons. And, and so this is something that we are seeing both the administration, the DCC, and our legislators respond to. And there is a lot of discussion about how to create market access for small farmers. So I do hope that some sort of actions 
in that respect can take place. And I think that that is really the, the cornerstone or the solution to, to really helping these farms, um, you know, survive and thrive. And what, what is the DCC? The Department of Cannabis Control, the, uh, yeah, the agency yeah, that, yeah. that we're under all under now. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Mount Curso was like the enabling legislation for Prop 16, for, for, um, for Prop 64. So there's certain things that can be done, uh, you know, uh, through an act of the legislature and still staying within the framework established by, uh, by Prop 64. But is yes, your, indeed. Is your vision, you know, uh, solidified to that point of actually uh, calling for either legislation or uh, proposed new regulations or? I think we're, we're, we are getting there. I think there's some consensus building points that need to, you know, some details that, that definitely need to be worked out ahead of time. And, um, and so that in, involves things like I mentioned before, kind of like, we have to make sure all retail is on board with whatever happens to retail in California. And there's a whole element of just a dire need for more retail, more licensed retail period. And uh, so that's one aspect, but then to get some sort of small farmer retail access, we have to have retailers on board. And so I think there's work to be done both within the industry and then also with, um, there, there may be issues with, making sure that uh, other stakeholders like the environmental community are you know, involved in understanding that this is a positive step forward and that this is not going to detriment any of the environmental reasons why we're regulating and, and what we're trying to protect. So partly I think it's just, a, a, you know, we're in a stepwise process and I do think we're fairly far along with having support, but uh, I think we're in the, final stages of that real consensus building process. And then I do think that we have legislative support to um, put something forward once those final pieces are kind of really laid out. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, some final thoughts before we wrap it up here. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of the people who were pushing for legalization back in the day were uh, you know, sort of making the argument that cannabis could be a uh, an ecologically um, sustainable alternative to uh, what has been a very heavily extractivist economy in Northern California based on timber and mining, and which is, you know, just really had a terrible ecological impact um, over, you know, the course of the past, uh, you know, century and a half that white people have uh, been up in that part of the country. So, um, mm -hmm. How do we, uh, I mean, how, is there a sense that, you know, that this, this vision is still alive and, and how do we, uh, of, you know, cannabis as, as an ecologically sound alternative, uh, certainly a consideration which has become a lot more um, pressing in light of, you know, the fires and the droughts and, and so on, and just, which, which can sort of be seen as a, uh, you know, that century and a half of um, ecological plunder in that part of the world sort of, um, you know, uh, the, the chickens coming home to roost from, from all that, so to speak. So, uh, <laughs> you, have, you have any thoughts yeah, about well, that? You know, I, I, I wish I knew more what outside of, of here it seems like, because definitely here there's two sides to cannabis and there's, there's, you know, the, horrible egregious cartel kind of activity that you see in the national forest and and then you see 
the most beautiful examples of regenerative closed loop agriculture on cannabis farms. And so I think, I think cannabis definitely has in our tradition here in Northern California carried a very, uh, a very environmentally sustainable practice and model for, for agriculture. And I think it has inspired people across the country and across the world. And I, I think that still exists. And I think that regenerative cannabis movement is still, is still growing and spreading. And I think that's really positive. Uh, but at the same time, as legalization happens, I think there's also, uh, you know, a lot more conventional agriculture being applied to cannabis. And so there's two sides to that. And now we see, we see both of those models with, with this plant. So I don't know, I think that ends up being kind of again in the hands of consumers and uh, it's really, consumers have a lot more power than they realize and it's, it's so important for, for the consumer to kind of push for that access and, and to support those products, not only for their food, but for their cannabis. And now, now just like with food, I think we're gonna be seeing the same sort of battle in, in cannabis agriculture. Right. So uh, any, uh, any final closing thoughts, particularly, uh, you know, for our listeners here on the East Coast? Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard time in Northern California for these small farmers, but wow, this crop was so beautiful this year. And um, despite the fires and, and, you know, there were losses, but then the farms that made it through, it was, it's, it's a stunning example of, of a region with who, you know, I think if you're on the East Coast, it's exciting to think about what your region's cannabis can, can be like over time. Uh, and, and then also to really think about, you know, visit, <laughs> come visit Northern California in the spring and, and come enjoy some Northern California cannabis and, and go ahead and come out to the Emerald Triangle and, and come to where you can actually access this, this really heritage uh, heirloom Appalachian of origin product because it's really special and, and it's, it's quite a trip. If, you, if you're a cannabis connoisseur or patient and you're passionate about this plant and how it's grown, I would, I would highly recommend uh, a vacation in, in Northern California's Emerald Triangle. Well, I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to it. It's actually been uh, 10 years since I've been in the state of California, which is now the longest I've gone in my adult life. And uh, I understand, you know, even uh, with all of the, the challenges that you've been discussing, it things like, seems like things have really advanced a great deal over those, um, over those past 10 years in many ways. So- um, Indeed. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, you want to see Trinity County again. Yes, I think you're due. It would it would be wonderful to have you out. I would love to give you a tour of some yeah. some farms and well, show you around. In, uh, in 2022. All right. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Carla Avila of um, Flower Days Farm and the uh, Origins Council and the Trinity County Agriculture Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us on the Counter Vortex. This has been really fascinating. Thanks so much. Okay. It's been great talking to you, Bill. Right. Likewise. Okay. Okay. That has been the Counter Vortex interview with Carla Avila out there in the mountains of Northern California. 
This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. You can check us out online at countervortex.org, where we rant on you every week. Support us on Patreon, join the Counter Vortex, join the Resistance, and rant on you next time.